Welcome to Better Off Bald, a life in 147 days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the life of 147 days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days four and five, Saturday and Sunday, May 19th through the 20th, 2001. Ache, pain, stab, throb, thrust, clust, clinch, tear, crumble, rebuild, rediscover, light, purple, blue, green, raw finger, numbers, 01136-01044, dull, hallucinating, silver, amber, cottonmouth, voices, inspiration, aura of blinding white, priestess, support, blind faith, acceptance at last, ovarian cancer, liver cancer, cancer, it's okay, everything's okay, nothing is ever worth thinking about, nothing is worth spreading, Jane's awareness, early detection, saved, fragile, glass wings, protected, healed, positive, flowing hair, wigs, neatoness, cereal, painted nails, what about toes, BAC, filler bunny, constantly full bladder, silly commode, on a scale of 1 to 10, 5, constant checkups, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm worth believing in, grr, zim, special, happy. Adrian's journal entry, dated May 19th, 2001. At 8 a.m. sharp, John and I arrive at the hospital. We meet Adrian's new nurse, Ronnie, a cheerful, tall blonde who is obsessed with frogs. She is warming up Adrian's hot pads, which are wet towels inside of Ziploc bags heated up in the microwave. Adrian needs three hot pads in order to be comfortable, on her liver, her lower back, and on her right shoulder. John explains Adrian likes her towels boiling hot. No one has gotten it right so far. They are afraid of burning her. Ronnie assures John she can do it, but he gives her a doubtful look. I'm going to have to prove myself to you, she says. Her response to John wins me over. I like this woman. She understands us. Visitors stream in and out all day, Saturday. Because Laquisha was discharged, Adrian has no roommate for the time being. With the extra space available, the room fills up with close friends. Meanwhile, the fourth floor waiting room holds more visitors, and even more people are waiting downstairs. Some are having a hard time getting in because they don't know Adrian's first name is Emma. Others are told Adrian's room is beyond maximum capacity, and they have to wait their turn. Ronnie comments on how lucky we are to have such a good support system. Anya replies, There are more of us. We're a cult, says our friend Jonathan. Without missing a beat, Alex comes back with, yeah, we even have jackets. Ronnie laughs out loud. What we don't tell Ronnie is a running joke in our group of friends is your name has to begin with an A or J to be a member. There are exceptions, of course, like my friend Marilyn, but then she married her husband, Justin, so we gave her a pass. 
John pays little attention to the people in the room. He is too busy reading and taking notes about the liver in all caps. Largest organ in the body. Four lobes. Five ligaments. Five fissures. Secretes bile. Aids digestion. Underneath diaphragm. Too much bilirubin leads to jaundice. Filters out bacteria and blood. Since John is learning how the liver works, I decide to read about hepatitis. I pick up the medical dictionary and open it to the H's. I learn that hepatitis is an inflammation of the liver and it is transmitted through blood or body fluids, except for hepatitis A, which is contracted through contaminated water or food. I remember hearing about a hip A scare a few years ago, something about contaminated strawberries grown in Mexico and later sold to school districts across the country. Los Angeles Unified was one of the districts. I told Adrian not to eat strawberries at school. Along with her other immunizations, Adrian received her hepatitis B vaccination, but since she had been infected years before, it made no difference. Vaccinations are preventative, not curative, and there is no vaccination for hepatitis C. The common ways to contract hepatitis B and C are sex with an infected person, sharing needles, or exposure to contaminated blood, either from a blood transfusion, working in the healthcare profession, or transmission from mother to child during childbirth. Dr. Christina's questions make sense now. By eliminating the other options, she concluded our mother did it. Adrian was born with hepatitis B and C, and no one at the time, including our mother, knew. When Adrian was born in 1986, pregnant women were not screened for hepatitis. I want to get angry with our mother, but there was no intent on her part, just ignorance. I go back to the book. Reading the next line feels like a punch in the stomach. Chronic infection, hepatitis B, typically is asymptomatic and may be detected only by blood test until it causes late complications, such as cirrhosis, portal hypertension, and hepatocellular carcinoma. My hopes for ovarian cancer are squelched. My nerves are wearing thin. Knowledge is power, but there is such a thing as too much information all at once. There seem to be no concrete answers, just pieces of circumstantial evidence. In my head, I pretend this nightmare is a crime with Adrian as its victim. Fact one. Adrian has hepatitis B and C. Fact two, she must have gotten it from our mother. Fact three, it might have been active during her life, but she did not display visible symptoms. Therefore, no one was able to diagnose it. Fact four, hepatitis B and C can lead to liver cancer. Conclusion, Adrian has liver cancer. Our mother is guilty. As a parent, I should have known something was wrong. All those physicals, vaccinations, and thyroid tests, and none of it mattered. Adrian still got sick. Only she didn't get the flu or the chicken pox. She got cancer, the short straw. Why? Why her? Why not our mother? I feel claustrophobic. The people, the noise, it won't go away. They won't go away. My mind stretches like a rubber band until it snaps. I scream, 
Get out. Get out of this room now. Our friends look at me in disbelief, but they leave without saying a word. Anya apologizes for my bad behavior as she ushers people out. While they wait outside, Alex and Anya's brother come up with an idea of building a website so people can check on Adrian's progress and schedule visits ahead of time. No one wants to see me flip out again. Adrian names the website, Adrian Kicks Cancer's Ass. Everyone gives me time to cool off. Two visitors at a time for 20 minutes is the new protocol, which seems reasonable to me. People filter back into the room in pairs. I can breathe now. There were too many people in the room before, but I am also upset because I know this abundance of love won't continue. I remember those abandoned nursing home residents in our mother's care. I know as Adrian's disease progresses, the visitors will wane. There will be fewer cards, flowers, stuffed animals, and balloons. I scrutinize each person, even our closest friends. How long will they last? I recall my own teenage reaction to hospitals and realize most of Adrian's peers will not visit again. The first time is a novelty. The second time becomes a reality. No one likes a sick girl. Who will make the cut? I wonder. At Children's Hospital, parents may visit at any time, and all others may visit from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. The 9 p.m. rule is not always enforced, so it's late by the time everyone leaves. When John and I ask Adrian if she wants both of us to stay the night, she says no. She sends me home. According to her, I am too stressed and filling her room with negative energy. I am disappointed, but I know she's right. I drive home feeling lost and lonely. In the past, I often complained about not having time to myself. I would finally be alone in the house, and I don't want to be there. That night is the first time I pray about the cancer. It's hard to pray to an entity you don't believe in. I was raised Southern Baptist, sort of. When my parents were married, they only attended church on Easter Sunday. However, when they divorced, I went to church with my paternal grandmother every Sunday. I went to vacation Bible school every summer and even church camp for an entire week, courtesy of my grandmother. I became saved because it pleased her, not because I felt God calling to me. When I prayed as a kid, God never answered, so I eventually gave up. Today, I consider myself agnostic. I think there's something out there, something beyond this life but I don't know what it is. If I pray to God to save Adrian, I have to reconcile the fact God let this nightmare happen in the first place. Some people believe that God doesn't make bad things happen because he doesn't have that kind of control over our lives. If God does not have control, then how can he produce a miracle? If he can perform miracles, then doesn't it follow that God has tremendous power and should be able to prevent bad things from happening? Harold Kushner says praying for a person's health has implications that ought to disturb a thoughtful person. If prayer worked the way people think it does, no one would ever die. I agree with him. So instead of praying for the cancer to go away, 
I pray for something more realistic. Please, God, if you are out there, please let it be ovarian cancer. Adrian can live without her ovaries, but not her liver. Women survive ovarian cancer. We'll do the chemo, whatever it takes. Just don't let it be her liver. She only has one. I'll do anything, whatever you want. Take my life. Just make her okay. I am desperate. I am bargaining with a God I don't even know exists. Before Adrian got sick, I believed in karma. Now, I believe in nothing. I always wanted a sister because I don't like my younger brother. I love him, but I don't like him. Aiden is different, special. Everyone remembers him. He was the kid of a hundred characters. As Superman, he donned a red cape and jumped off rocks or tree stumps. Becoming Popeye required work, a red baseball cap, a plastic yellow pipe, and one eye shut. I thought Aiden might permanently damage his eye because it never saw the sun, but it recovered in time for his favorite character of all, the Hulk. At recess, he would rip his t-shirt off and growl at the other students. I pretended not to know him. He also followed me around and played kin to my Barbie. We have the same parents. When I was nine, I checked our birth certificates because I was convinced one of us was adopted. But no, we are full brother and sister. I was disappointed. I did not want to be related to this weird kid. Like any older sister, I tortured him. I had many opportunities because Aiden walked in his sleep. I would paint his toenails or turn him the wrong direction in the hall so he peed in the kitchen trash can. He never woke up. My parents said Aiden didn't talk much because I spoke for him, but maybe he didn't have anything to say. Like Aiden and me, our parents were polar opposites. Ding, ding, ding. I pictured them in a boxing ring. Solid gold versus hee-haw. Dad was an extrovert who smoked cigarettes and liked rock and roll. Mother, however, was a social misfit who rarely smoked and preferred the tunes of Dolly Parton to Mick Jagger. Dad sometimes smoked pot, but never around us. Mother popped pills all the time. Diet pills, she said as I watched her swallow a handful. To my relief, they divorced in 1982. Aiden was seven. I was ten. Dad remarried within a year, which pissed Mother off. She yelled at him over the phone through me, Tell your father this. And he said, Tell your mother that. They sheltered Aiden from their fights. Sometimes being the oldest sucked. Since our mother worked graveyard shift and slept during the day, she expected me to be in charge of Aiden. I cooked breakfast, Pop-Tarts, toast, walked Aiden to school, and made him clean his room. When Aiden spilled Pepsi on Mother's new brown velvet chair, she yelled at me and told me to clean it up. Aiden laughed. I wanted to throttle him. Saturday was cleaning day. I had to dust the furniture, sweep the kitchen, wash the dishes, and take out the trash. Aiden's only job was to pick up his toys off his bedroom floor, which he then shoved under his bed or in his closet. When I complained, our mother said, life's not fair. For three years, Aiden and I were shuttled back and forth between our parents. We spent every weekend with dad plus Thursday nights. 
We were the only kids in our cul-de-sac whose parents were divorced. I was ashamed by their failure and embarrassed when Dad pulled into our driveways on Saturday afternoons to pick us up. Being a child of divorce takes skill. There are rules. Don't have fun at Dad's house. Pretend to hate your stepmother. Tell Dad your bedtime is 9 p.m. even though Mother lets you stay up until midnight reading. Pretend you don't know anything about Mother's love life. And pills? What pills? My red and green cloth-covered suitcase had become a part of me until the summer of 1985. Our mother had decided she could no longer live in the same city, let alone the same state, as her father. She wanted to move back to her home state of Alabama. Ballet was my passion, so when I was accepted into the Alabama School of Fine Arts, also known as ASFA, a performing arts school for grades 7 through 12, it sealed our fate. Going to ASFA was more important to me than staying near my father, who did not support my desire to dance because it was not practical. He wanted me to be a doctor. However, split legal custody did not allow my parents to take either child out of the state of Arkansas without the other person's permission. My mother dragged me to her lawyer's office many times that summer. Our parents settled on a strange compromise. Divide the children as if we were property. Mother got me. Dad got Aiden. I don't think my parents thought about how their decision would affect my relationship with my brother. Dad later told me taking Aiden was the only insurance he had he would ever see me again. Mother compared herself to Meryl Streep's character in Sophie's Choice. She would say, Your father made me choose between you and your brother, and I chose you, as if she had done me a favor. I became the reason she had no connection with her son, even though she almost never called him. Dad and I had our regular Thursday night phone call, a habit that continued through college and helped us form a permanent bond. Aiden and I grew apart. We have no relationship. I wake up in the morning feeling rested, more energized, positive. I make a list of things I have to do. Shower, feed cats, go to Office Depot, and go to Anya and Alex's house. I need to use their computer because ours is broken. Then I add, eat breakfast to the list. Food shouldn't be optional, but eating is not a priority. Less than an hour later, I am at Anya and Alex's apartment. Alex surprises me with an English breakfast latte and a bagel from Coffee Bean. Lack of money forces me to avoid gourmet coffee places, so the latte is a luxury. I've never had one before. I take a sip. It's yummy. A week ago, the latte would have tasted the same, but I would not have derived so much pleasure from it. The simple things, like tasting a great tea, mean more to me now. I continue to savor my new favorite drink as I type an email to everyone I know. Dear everyone, I'm going to be out of the loop for a while. Adrian got diagnosed with cancer this past Friday. We find out tomorrow exactly what type of cancer it is, either ovarian or liver, and she will begin treatment right away. She is in stage four, and it's bad. I will be spending most of my time with her at the hospital. If you would like to help us in any way or send Adrian something, here is some contact information. Children's Hospital, Los Angeles, Emma Adrian Wilson, room 404B, 4650 Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90027. Please do not send flowers. They are not permitted in her ward. Please contact my voicemail for updates on Adrian or to schedule a visit. 
0617. I'm discouraging phone calls to the hospital. Adrian needs her rest and the phone wakes her up. A website is under construction. It will be devoted to Adrian and her fight against cancer. Our immediate needs are our laptop. Adrian would use it to do homework. If you know anyone who can donate an old one, it would be helpful. Do not buy a new one. We're only seeking donations. Minor errands are impossible at the moment. If you live near Burbank and have time to run errands for us, please let me know. Research. If you have time to research her cancer and research any possible financial aid to parents in our situation, please let us know. I'm not going to be working for some time, so we will need some type of assistance. Thank you. Please pray and be positive. Adrian sure is. As she said yesterday, someone is testing me to see how strong I am. Well, I am strong. Love, Andrea. When I arrive at the hospital, I discover Adrian's pain medication is being changed from morphine to Dilaudid. Although she does not have a full-blown allergic reaction to morphine, it makes her hallucinate and disrupts her sleep. She is groggy but awake. So is John. I want them to see what I bought at Office Depot. I pull out each item and display it proudly. A large whiteboard, a small calendar whiteboard, a set of dry erase markers, a three-inch black binder, dividers, a three-hole punch, highlighters, pens, and paper. They look at me. John shakes his head. Adrian laughs and asks, What is all that stuff, sissy? I have a plan. First, I prop up the whiteboard and write with a pink marker, Messages for Adrian on it. She smiles. Her friends will be able to leave her notes where she can see them. I three-hole punch paper and put in the binder along with the dividers. On a separate piece of paper, I write in three different colors, Adrian's Survival Kit. I slide the title page into the front sleeve of the binder and hold it up. Adrian smiles again as she drips off. John nods and says, good idea. Even though I didn't get the reaction I wanted, I feel good, strong, powerful. I did something. I am not a doctor, but I am going to keep track of every aspect of this disease. I am organized, prepared to fight. For one solid minute, I believe we can win. Since Adrian is older, the doctors decide she can have a PCA, which stands for Patient Controlled Analgesia. When she is in pain, all she has to do is click a button and the medication is released into her IV. A PCA helps the doctors detect patterns and monitor her pain. Initially, Adrian tries to be brave and refuses to push the button. It aggravates the hell out of me, watching her suffer and knowing I can't do anything about it. Only Adrian can push the button. John and I take this rule seriously, as if the medical police are watching and will arrest us at any moment. When I press Adrian further about pushing the button, she says she doesn't want to become an addict, like our mother. Right after Adrian's eighth birthday, I received a call from mother who was in tears. After years of stealing pills from hospitals and nursing homes that employed her, she had been caught in the act. Only it wasn't pills. This time she was shooting up morphine at work. She was fired. Her nursing license was revoked. I didn't know what to say. I was sad and disgusted at the same time. Adrian still lived with our mother, who had always worked. Mother was what therapists call a high-functioning addict. When I mentioned joining a program, she balked, saying she didn't have a problem. Our mother's behavior haunts Adrian. We come from a family of addicts, drugs, uppers, downers, 
nicotine, alcohol, food, even lack of food. From our pill-popping mother to anorexic Aunt Tootsie, our family is a mess. Once in college, I told our mother I had a bad day and was depressed. An envelope full of halcyon arrived in the mail three days later. I took half of one and fell asleep. When I told our mother I flushed the rest down the toilet, she got angry and said I should have sent them back to her. What a waste, she said. I was 20 when I realized our mother had a drug problem. What appears to be stubbornness on Adrian's part is actually fear. I understand that fear. I didn't smoke a cigarette or do any drugs until I was 22. Benson and Hedges menthol and four lines of cocaine. Except for the occasional cigar, I don't smoke and I never did drugs again, not even pot. Adrian knows these stories. Both incidents happened a few months before she came to live with me. I think she might have tried a cigarette once, but marijuana and other drugs don't interest her. She is what the kids call straight edge. I go in search of Ronnie and explain Adrian's refusal to push the button because of our family's history of addiction. She comes into Adrian's room and sits on her bed. In layman's terms, Ronnie explains the difference between taking medication because you need it for physical pain and taking medication because you want it for pleasure. You won't get high from Dilaudid. You will get relief from your pain, she says. Don't you want that? Adrian nods. Ronnie assures her there is a lockout mechanism to prevent Adrian from getting too much medication within a given amount of time. Adrian leans over, grabs the PCA, and pushes the button. <sighs> I exhale when I hear the click. Kirsten, a friend of John's, is driving in today to help us put together a list of questions for Dr. No regarding Adrian's treatment. Kirsten is the Associate Director of Clinical Research at the San Diego Cancer Center and Research Institute. She has her bachelor's degree in physiology and neuroscience with her master's in clinical research. In other words, she is a genius. When John called her and told her about Adrian, she offered to help right away. While I wait for Kirsten to arrive, John goes with Adrian to get her first bone scan. The doctors need to know if the tumors have spread beyond her lungs. For two hours, Adrian has to lie on a giant metal plate as another giant metal plate hovers one inch above her body. She can't move. No stretching, no twitching. She can hear, though, and John does his best to entertain her with stories about the stupidity of his co-workers without making Adrian laugh. If she chuckles, the technician reminds her, do not move. When she returns to her room, Adrian declares the bone scan makes her feel claustrophobic and it is her least favorite test. She hopes never to do it again. There are fewer visitors today, and people are sticking to the new 2 in for 20 rule. Jared and his girlfriend Joyce arrive and greet Adrian by rubbing her feet. Jared's brother Jesse brings Adrian three wigs in bright colors, red, pink, and lime green. Each wig is cut in a standard page boy style with thick bangs and blunt ends, the way Adrian wears her own hair. Adrian's boyfriend Eli spends most of the afternoon and evening with Adrian. He does not count as one of the two visitors because he is always here. He brings his Beavis and Butthead tapes, home movies from his childhood, and more books and magazines. Adrian makes each visitor watch Baby Eli at Disneyland because she thinks it's hysterical. People come and go, but it is less chaotic than yesterday. With fewer people in the room and a better attitude, I am able to relax. Kirsten arrives in the late afternoon. John shows Kirsten the notes he has taken so far. 
She asks more questions and then she dictates a list to John. Number one, does Adrian have fibrolamellar HCC? That's better. Number two, are the tumors poorly differentiated, bad, or undifferentiated, better? Number three, did you see nodules in the tumor cells? Number four, did you see broad bands of fibrous tissues? Number five, do the tumors have a fibrous capsule? No is bad, yes is good. Number six, are the tumors estrogen receptor positive, bad, or negative, good? Number seven, how many cases of HCC have you treated? What are the commonalities? My brain is in high gear, but I know I can't understand the meaning behind every question. Number seven seems obvious though, and Kirsten explains the first two. I am lost by the time we get to number three. John pays attention and he continues to take notes in all caps on my yellow legal pad. At the end of the day, Adrian gets a new roommate, a four-year-old Hispanic girl suspected of having leukemia. Her parents speak little English. As I listen to the translator through the thin curtain separating the two beds, I wonder how much they understand about what is going on with their daughter and how much gets lost in translation. I can see the worry on their faces. I have to pass them to leave or come into the room. The girl seems lethargic, but when Adrian puts on her wigs and plays peekaboo with the curtain, the girl giggles. Her parents smile, and we see the gratitude carving creases in their faces. Some languages are universal. Laughing is one of them. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode, which will air in two days. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.